This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the Heart of Dating podcast. Hey, it's Kate. I'm so glad you could join us this week as we try to entangle the ever so ambiguous world of dating as a Christian. Over here on Heart of Dating, we get real as we answer some tough questions and uncover transformative ways to approach Christian dating. Oh, and you better believe we have some laughs along the way, because last time I checked, the struggle is hashtag real. You know what I'm saying? Now, let's get to the heart of the matter. Hey friends, I am so excited for today. If you know me personally, you have probably been around when I brought up the topic of the Enneagram, or maybe one of your friends has brought it up to you and you've thought, what is that? Well, guess what? You will find out all about it today. Though it has been around for ages, I really am more of an Enneagram novice as I've recently made it my mission to know more and more about this incredible tool. I have just been learning so much about myself personally, including why I think and react certain ways and just more about who I am to the depths of my being. And in my mind, it is an essential tool in dating, which is why I'm so pumped for you to learn more about it today. Our guest is just yes on my excitement level because we are talking with Chris Hewerts. Chris is the author of the book, The Sacred Enneagram, and he's an international Enneagram associate accredited professional. He is also an amazing activist who has been involved with working against human trafficking and humanitarian relief while also being such an incredible Enneagram teacher. He is legit, you guys, let me tell you. He studied under Mother Teresa for three years while living in India, and he's trained under Richard Rohr. He actually found out about the Enneagram 20 years ago while being in the slums of Cambodia and has since studied it a ton and really believes that it can be used to get back to health, wholeness, and our true identity as God intended it to be. Just a few years ago in 2012, Chris and his wife, Felina, launched Gravity, which is a center for contemplative activism. Today, Chris leads workshops and retreats all around the world. And I just have to say, Chris is such a phenomenal guy and an incredible teacher. There were points in our conversation that I almost had no word. So I hope you will take time to intently listen and get ready to learn a heck of a lot about a tool that can change your life. Chris, oh my gosh, I have so been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, so happy to be with you. Thanks for including me. You're awesome. I honestly, I just wish you could see and hear the conversation I've been having with some of my friends because truth be told, I have just been geeking out completely on all of the Enneagram stuff lately. It's nerd alert over here. It's just helped me so much to understand you know, more about myself on a very deep level. And on top of that, understanding other people as well. And, you know, I feel like when you just dive in, I mean, really and truly dive in, it can be really eye-opening, but also um, just very necessary. For sure. And and I think that's actually one of the gifts of the Enneagram is that it helps us um, 
it helps us know what to do with our ability to self-observe because I, 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 I try to say this as, as frequently as I can, but if you can't self-observe, you can't self-correct. And in our relationships with um, our coworkers, with our partners, with the, the, the sets of friends in our communities, um, our ability to sort of bring our best into those settings is, is really the, the social gift of us being true to self. So yeah. man, the Enneagram is, is, is a great tool, a great teaching for that kind of awareness. Yeah, that's that self-awareness. And I feel like it's just, it's really great for um, like your emotional well-being, spiritual, mental well-being. And uh, just like you said, it's great for relationships too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because in my community, you know, here in LA and beyond, I feel like it's just recently becoming a hot topic. Like people are being reawakened to its existence, at least in my community. But I think that's so funny because it's been around for, I mean, what, what has it been around for decades, for centuries? You tell me. Maybe thousands of years. Um, thousands of that's years. That's the thing about the Enneagram. The story is, is ridiculous. Like the contested, conflicted history is, 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 is almost mythological. And uh, so that's, that's also what's exciting about the teaching mm-hmm. is if this is 6,000 years ago from you know, the deserts of, of ancient Egypt, or if this shows up 4,000 years ago in prehistoric Korea or 2,000 years ago in Afghanistan, if the early Greek mathematicians or if the mystics from Judaism or Christianity, Islam have, have been developing this, mm. um, we're working with a, an overlay of the Enneagram that's really about 40 or 50 years old as it relates to personality or typology. Mm. And, um, wow. So there's a real rich tradition here that we're even even unaware of, we've, we've hardly begun to uncover it, right? That is amazing. So I think it's so interesting because many people are, you know, advocates of like the Myers-Briggs, which is a good tool, but I've, I personally have been really encouraging everyone to take the Enneagram instead. Can you just briefly explain for us um, the differences between the two? So, so hundred years ago, the Enneagram was introduced as a process teaching and, and the process teaching had very little to do with, with personality or human character structure. Mm. Um, like I said, about 40 or 50 years ago, uh, a Bolivian wisdom teacher named Oscar Chazo began to introduce this teaching um, of 108, what he called Enneagons, for the mm. clarification of human consciousness. And then a therapist, a Gestalt therapist from Chile, a man named Claudio Naranjo, took this and began to develop out Enneagram types or Enneatypes. So... 2018, what we're, we're contending with um, in terms of the teaching as it specifically is referred to as the Enneagram of personality yeah. is a psycho-spiritual character structure tool that sort of shows us nine ways of being, nine ways of seeing the world, nine ways of interacting with reality. Mm. And what I generally try to say is what the Enneagram shows us is our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth. Uh, about who we really are. We'd mm. rather fortify the projection of our own ego mythology than come back to the gift of our essence and excavate that essence so that we can can live with alignment for the the, the creative purpose of, of our being. Mm, so what happened is folks took this teaching and and in some ways I I I almost think weaponized it by reducing it down to quirks and caricatures and personality. Mm. But I think there's a lot of us out there that are actually trying to help return to assets and trying to say, look, there's there's nine kinds of, of people out there according to the Enneagram, but but less than that, one of my teachers says it's it's more 
it's less about nine types of people. It's more about nine paths to God. It's more about mm. paths back to your true self. It's more about yeah. nine journeys home to get to that inward essence, to be the person that you are supposed to be, to bring the gift that we need you to bring in, into the world. That itself right there is enough for me to say, okay, I want to take that test right now if, I, if I'm listening and as a, am a person that hasn't taken it yet. But before we get into the nitty gritty, I guess, of more of the beauty of the Enneagram and how it can really help us get to more of our true self, can you just give us just a really brief overview, I guess, of those nine different types that you just referenced? Sure. So, so if you look at the, the drawing of the Enneagram, it's a circle with, with nine points equidistant from each other um, around that mm-hmm. circle. And um, the, each of these points are assigned a number, and, and these numbers then are, are correlated with type. So provokes are dominant in type one, which is sometimes called um, the perfectionist or the reformer, you know, in the Enneagram mm-hmm. Institute. And of course, the Enneagram and the narrative tradition have assigned, think, really helpful handles or names to these types. Yeah. Um, but I generally don't use the names and I generally don't use the the handles because they play sort of, or they describe social functions and social roles that we play. They, they don't describe essence, but can be a helpful rhetorical device to remember the energy of the nine types. So type one, if it's helpful, um, you can, can remember this as the reformer or the, the perfectionist. This is the person who has this inner drive or this need to be perfect. And so they're principled, they hold a really high standard. Um, sadly, they, they, they suffer the pain of their, their, their highly developed inner critic, which is essentially their super ego, just beating them down with all the oughts and shoulds and, and replaying the things that they said wrong or did wrong. These mm-hmm. folks um, suffer the pain of, of, of frustration with a protective caregiver in their imperfect holding environments. We all had imperfect childhoods. Yeah. And, and this is <clears throat> what drives somebody who's dominant type one then to take on a protective stance by holding us together through structure, um, through compliance to rules, and, and through really adherence to, to principles. Um, mm-hmm. They're idealists, and, and, and the frustration for somebody who's dominant type one comes out of the, the pain of them not even being able to live into their own perf- per- notions of perfection. And, yeah. and so that's hard. It's really hard to be them. Um, but when they relax into their character structure, the, the levity and the playfulness, the, the, the charm and, and the winsomeness that comes out of ones is, is remarkable. Mm. Folks who are dominant type two, this is called the helper or the giver. And um, these folks um, experienced a, a, a and, and this is an accurate portrayal of their reality. It was the sort of misperception of, of us in our child, childhood yeah. When we didn't have the psychological construct or framework to accurately narrate reality, but they experienced a form of rejection around their protective caregiver, thinking that as they opened their heart, and folks who are dominant type two are really the heart of the Enneagram, right? This, these are yeah. the lovers of the Enneagram, the nurturers of the Enneagram. What they wanted to do was to draw that protective caregiver towards them through this openness and this, and this tenderness. And what happened was their protective caregiver probably loved them very well through a protective a protective stance, which felt like a form of rejection to the two. In fact, probably wasn't rejection. And so now folks who are dominant type two in their adult lives double down on this nurturing stance um, as a way of trying to draw the world to them through connections and through comparisons. And so mm-hmm. they are incredibly emotionally intelligent. They are incredibly self-giving. And, and really that's sort of the shape of their fatal flaws, that they give themselves away at their own expense. Yeah. Fencing themselves that this is love, when in fact, 
to love themselves, to acknowledge their own needs and to ask for what they really want elicits tremendous guilt and shame in them. And so folks who are dominant type two are, are, are just, they're, 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 they're the most endearing of the Enneagram and their sweetness yeah. and kindness and generosity. Um, but we need to learn to love them well, because the ways that they love us shows us how to live and how to love in the world. Mm, I have a lot of type twos actually around me. Mm. They are, they are so sweet. They're so tender. I love it's so overly giving, just like you said, but uh, love that. I love the twos. <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous hearts. Yeah. Like three is sometimes called the performer or the achiever. And this is an empty hearted person who. <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing only because that's my type. I love it. Okay. Uh, so the, <laughs> the, the person who's dominant type three spent their childhood in a sense disconnected from their heart. And so they attach to the nurturing caregiver as a proxy or a substitute of feeling their own heart. Yeah. What happened then is in the emptiness of their heart, um, this person wanted to continue to feel that even as a nurturing caregiver sort of allowed them to, 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 to mature in their own psychological um, development. And so this person then began to reach outside their heart to try to bring things into their heart as a way of experiencing it. And so mm-hmm. that often was affirmation, attention, reward, um, that was being acknowledged. And, and, and when they felt seen and, and recognized, valued and appreciated, they thought they were being loved. But folks who are dominant type three are smarter than that, and they know that's not real love. And so the, the real ache here is this fear that they actually do not have inherent value apart from the things that they, they accomplish. And so they're driven. They're, wow. they're incredibly driven. And, and what they drive to do is is to build a better world, and 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 so they do this with people in communities, for groups, and 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 they can sometimes do this from the side. They can sometimes mm-hmm. be quiet leaders from behind, but the truth is, is they're incredibly competitive, and this competition is is really again a sense of trying to self perfect, so that in this notion yeah. of self perfection, they can earn their value, and in a sense, then feel love. So if they're mm-hmm. not in type three, you, you really have to press into the emptiness of your own heart to find actually the true value that's already there. You have to actually acknowledge and accept that you already are loved and can be a source of love. Mm. This really comes from, from developing compassion. Mm, Gosh, I feel like you're just speaking to my soul right there. (laughs) It's so good. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So folks who are dominant type four, sometimes called the, the romantic or the individualist, right? This is, if three is the need to succeed, four is the need to be unique. And these mm-hmm. people suffer the pain of this this fear that they've lost their own sort of sense of self, their own sense of of inner significance, their own sense of personal identity, and so they spend their life seeing significance and beauty everywhere but themselves. And mm-hmm. as they call it out, really, what they're trying to do is is feel the echo of it bouncing off of what they perceive to to, to be insignificant in their own identities. This fear drives them to um, really sort of curate a range and a spectrum of intense and, and, and very real emotions. And, and these emotions can be curated in such a way that it helps them, in one hand, sort of experience the depths of self-abandonment, but in the other hand, to feel alive in, 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 mm. in that angst and sometimes darkness and pain. Um, hmm. but their ability, like I said, to see beauty and significance everywhere is, is their gift. And and when they can finally see it for themselves, they they enter this sort of level of liberation where they let go of, of, of this longing to have what it is that they've always fantasized or dreamed about, yet 
afraid that they could never, never attain. And, mm. and that sort of loop of, of self-abandonment, that loop of, of staying stuck, that loop of, of, of feeling lost, um, can be broken. And that can be broken through acknowledgement, right? Through truth telling, right? Yeah. Folks mm. are dominant type five. This is called the, um, observer or sometimes the investigator. This is the need to understand. And these folks live mm. ahead and, and they're really way yeah. up there. Um, mm-hmm. fours and fives are painfully misunderstood in the Enneagram and oh, wow. fives are painfully misunderstood because it seems as if they, they have this, you know, they're some of the language you'll see around the, the character structure for type five is, is greed or retention or stinginess. And, and it's not that, that fives are greedy or stingy. It's that fives self-protect and they self-protect so that they can move into their, their cerebral capacity to suss out the answers to every complex question. And when they can get these answers and, and then actually offer them to, to their partner, to their loved ones, this is their social gift. This is them actually offering stability and security and, 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 and safety. Um, they hmm. know the questions that we don't even know how to ask. They just need to have a little bit of sort of, they need to be freed away from the frivolities of like, cocktail parties and, and like meaning, yeah. meaningless social engagement so that they can give themselves what they perceive to be the most meaningful way of coming back around and loving us. Mm. So they're, they're incredible folks. I, I, I sometimes say that the, my friends who are fives are sort of golden retrievers of, of knowledge and information. Uh, mm. I mean, they really, they really will get to the bottom of everything. Yeah. I have a, a few close f- fives and they are just so intelligent too. There's something about the fives that just, they're, they're very, very intelligent individuals. Yeah. Incredible learners um, who often don't need teachers because teachers slow them down. I mean, you mm. let them go and they'll, and they'll, and they'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, folks who are dominant type six, this is called the loyalist or the skeptic. This is the need to be secure. These are the, the threat forecasters of the Enneagram and they, and they second guess and doubt themselves constantly. And that's, really a, a pain of theirs because it, it drums up distress and anxiety. And this inner anxiety is part of what they perceive their social gift of loving us might be. Because if they can actually find the things that could go wrong, if they can suss out all the dangers, if they can sort of go to the worst case scenarios and, and contingency plan around those for our sake, then that's how they'll keep us safe. And that's how they'll protect us. So this notion of cowardice that's often ascribed to the six is really unfortunate because it's unfair language. The cowardice is really them trying to face their fears, which is truly a form of courage, but that pressing into their fears and and really giving their fears power and and letting their fears grow is how they love us so that the fears Mm. can actually be allayed so that they can actually be circumvented, right? Folks are dominant type seven. This is called the enthusiast. And this is the need to avoid pain. And, and we're so confused because we think sevens are in their hearts and, and they're, and they're actually one of the two anomalies of the Enneagram. Um, yeah. it's, it's the seven that actually doesn't have a natural connection to its heart at all. So as little kids, so interesting. it attached to their nurturing caregiver as a way of feeling a heart. And, and this led to frustration, frustration that it was difficult for them to feel their own. So sevens are playful and, and, and funny, and adventurous, <laughs> so much adjective. Yeah. And, and really they feel like they're dying when their options and access to opportunity and resources are being limited because freedom is, is so important to them. But because they're disconnected from their heart, they, they can actually, it turns out, make really great humanitarians and social workers um, mm. because they press into pain and not 
without feeling it, without being sort of emotionally drawn into the the, the drama or the mm. complexities of it. Wow. Um, type eight, this is sometimes called the challenger. This is the need to be against. Um, these are the folks who hate bullies, but they're the biggest bully. Um, <laughs> these are the folks that just, you know, hassle, sass and hustle are their love languages. They, they fight to build trust. They, they push on people. There's this contrarian nature in them. And, and, and really it's a self, it's a maladaptive self-protective strategy of, of maintaining control because when they are not in control, they really act out. Mm. there's a, a, a pain in them that has to do with part of their childhood feeling lost or having been accelerated. So, you know, for sevens to sort of be around a puppy or a little kid actually unhinges and, and releases their inner child, which they're fiercely trying to hide and protect. And, and, and when that inner child of the eight can, can come forward, you, you see real freedom and, and real liberation. And then finally, folks are dominant type nine. This is called the, the mediator, the peacemaker. And, and these are the, the world's great arbitrators. The world's great referees are incredibly understanding, incredibly compassionate. When activated and centered, they really embody love and action better than any of the other nine types. But in their childhood, they, they minimize their own needs. They repress them. They hid them. And they put the needs of, 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 of a family member or mm. somebody in their imperfect holy environment forward. And this became the muscle memory then of diminishing their sense of self. And so they can sometimes come across as really understated or really withdrawn or somewhat detached. detached. Um, they mm-hmm. merge the people that they love. And in this merging, they, they, they sometimes lose themselves. But it's, it's not because they don't know themselves. This is how they, they want to offer themselves. This is how they want to love through that kind of connecting. And so Really, for, for folks who are dominant type nine, it's it's finally feeling your anger that you didn't have to, to repress your needs or, or your sense of self as a child. Mm. It's finally feeling the anger that you've probably been taken advantage of for most of your life. And, it, and it's finally sort of showing up and, and bringing the best of yourself because, you know, they, they sometimes say that the nine is the archetype of all the nine types. This is maybe the most human of all humanity. So that's sort of run around this color wheel of, of, of human character structure. Gosh, Chris, that was amazing. And I've read your book and even just hearing you say all of that again, just there's so much more to even learn, not only about our own types, but about everyone else and the people around us. So, um, and the way that people can take the test online, I took the test online. So I know there's different resources online for people to take it if they're interested, right? They could just Google the Enneagram Institute. Is that the best one that you recommend? Well, I, so there's, a, there's a number of ways to, to discover type, um, in terms of just sheer utility, most people do appeal to an online test. Okay. And I know that there's a lot of folks out there that, that think that online tests are unhelpful. Um, mm. but it's, it's, it's what most people are going to do. And so if you're going to do that, I, I generally do recommend the Enneagram Institute's RETI, R-H-E-T-I test. And I think it's like maybe 10 or 12 bucks. Um, okay. but it's a, it's a, it's a good test. Now you have to know that all of the tests out there though, do bring with them inherent racial and cultural bias that a lot of the tests will sometimes actually test for personality, not essence. And, and that's not what mm. we're trying to get at here. And then you also have to not test the test or you not, or you have to be careful not to test the test in in terms of the kind of person you want to be or how you want to be seen, but, but really how you experience the truth of yourself. And that's when the test can actually be, be helpful. 
Okay. So I'm really excited. Hopefully everyone listening is going to just hop and figure out a way to take the test or figure out what their type is. This is a dating podcast after all. So I have to ask, um, why do you think the Enneagram is so important for a culture of people dating, especially 20s and 30s, as they come into their own and they're exploring, inviting someone else onto the journey with them? Why do you think it's so important? Well, I, I, I think that, um, you know, I, I think what, 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 where the Enneagram sometimes gets stuck and then maybe misused is in fueling our own sort of sense of narcissism, right? When you mm-hmm. come across this, it's like, oh, I love this so much. It, it, I finally feel understood. I finally feel seen. I finally have framework for all these things about myself that I've intuitively or instinctively known, but didn't have sort of categories or a grid to drop it into. Now, look, that's, that's a good starting point, but if, if that's where it stops, then like you're, you're just feeding your own selfishness. And like that actually is counterproductive. If you really do believe that you're created for community and connection. So I I think in terms of interpersonal relationships, this allows the best of us to to come forward. And this also allows us to observe the, the places and the ways that we get stuck. And of yeah. course, in the Enneagram, there's such great teachings um, and great overlays for even navigating the complexities of relationships, right? So the, yeah. the social styles and the, and the conflict avoidance styles actually become mm-hmm. really practical rails and tools for, for, for getting out of the mm-hmm. ways that you get stuck in relationships when you feel like you're at an impasse or it's sort of lost its, its, its energy or, or excitement. To that point, when you're like going into dating or wanting to enter into a relationship, or maybe you are in one right now, what do you feel like is maybe the right timing to be like, Hey, (laughs) what is your Enneagram type? Or do you know, or Mm -hmm. like, is it, is that too intrusive to ask someone in the beginning, you know, or Mm -hmm. is it okay to just go off and be like, I'm, I'm the kind of person I'm just going to speak for myself where I want to know all the information, but so I'm just curious to know what, what is your, what are your thoughts on that (laughs) and being sensitive? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I, I I don't think there's any harm in having a conversation around type if mm-hmm. if 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 two partners in a relationship are both aware of of the teaching and are aware of their own type. I, I think it it becomes weaponized when you type people. I, I think the the teaching becomes dangerous yeah. when you reduce people to um, fragments of of their whole and and that's true for our entire sense of self. Any one of yeah. us that allows some of the fragments of our identity to lay claim to the whole of who we think we are. We, we, we clearly then don't know who we are. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I think if, if you really understand the Enneagram, um, at its core, what it, what it ultimately does is, is it teaches you compassion for yourself and it teaches you compassion for others. Mm -hmm. So if you can look at this through that lens of compassion and you do have a conversation early on in a relationship, um, my sense is that it really could only just sort of fuel connections. It could only fuel affections and, 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 yeah. and, and what's, what's lovable about, about someone. For me, now that I've really gone on this path of discovering more about myself as a type three and, and kind of, you know, asking other people, well, what, what's your type? And then it really gives me at least so far on, on going on this journey, a ton of compassion to understand why they may see the world the way they see it, you know, and, um, and how I can best, I guess, in ways also relate to them and meet them where they are. Mm. So at least that's, it's been hugely transformative for me and just understanding others and trying to love them better and having compassion for them. And I think maybe, I mean, 
it can also in ways when someone reacts a certain way or or ha- says something specific, it helps us to maybe be less reactionary back and kind of more understanding of where they may be coming from based on based on their type. Is that does that sound well? And yeah, and, and that and that's where that compassion comes forward. But that's also where yeah. we we can see observable patterns in how yeah. people relate to different people. Right, the, the conflict avoidance styles is if you're you're familiar with um, some of the Enneagram Institute's teaching on what are called the harmonic groups, right, sort yeah. of show mm-hmm. us that as as a love offering to de-escalate conflict, we we do that in three different ways: either through emotional intensity and just sort of discharging, sort of getting something off our yeah. chest through positive outlook or, or sort of reframing, or through rational competency. And, 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 and so what happens in relationships is if we are mismatched with our conflict avoidance style, then it's hard to receive it from the other. And we're not intentionally doing this, but when we are incapable of observing that and it then feels like we're not receiving this love offering to deescalate conflict, it actually drives us towards conflict. So, you know, mm-hmm. the, the trick in relationships is, is most of the fights are never about the fight. And I think with conflict avoidance styles, the Enneagram helps you see that and actually helps you see how you don't have to engage most of the things that, that, that derail us, that, that, that creates stressors mm-hmm. or strains between us. So it, it can mm-hmm. be a really practical, really practical teaching for, for how we relate to ourselves and, and, and others. So to that point too, I mean, are there, <laughs> I mean, are there more ideal kinds of pairings than others? Um, so that's the thing. Like, I, I don't know what the science of attraction or compatibility is. Um, mm-hmm. because my, my sense is, is you sort of can't just sort of pick, I want to partner with somebody who's dominant in type six, or I want to partner with somebody who's dominant in type one. Like I, I, I think, you know, the mystery of chemistry is one of the things that makes relationships so, so beautiful. So yeah. there are really good resources out there. The late Dr. David Daniels put together a grid with all Enneagram types and how they relate to each of the other Enneagram mm-hmm. types. Helen Palmer's book, um, The Enneagram in Love and Work, takes every Enneagram type and matches it with every other Enneagram type and sort of gives sort of the hints on here's the gifts and the challenges of working together and being in a, a, in a loving relationship with one another. I, I think you have to just learn to navigate mm-hmm. the gifts and challenges of being different and, and what compatibility yeah. looks like. They, they do say though, that the, the, maybe the, 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 the most difficult pairings would be when you are paired with somebody that's your same type. Right. And not in friendships, but I, I think in sort of romantic relationships and, and some that the teaching sense. around that has to, to do with, if there's two folks, let's say, who are both really dominant type eights, one of them is going to have to, mm-hmm. to, in a sense, repress part of him or herself to allow the dominance of their partner to to to, to sort of come forward. And again, that's real yeah. life. We all have to do that in our own relationships in, in one way or another anyway. But um, yeah. it's funny because I don't know if I've ever personally dated a type three that I can think of, but... I relate, I have many friends who are type three or in working relationships, lots of other type threes. So it is interesting navigating that on a friendship level or in a work capacity, but I can, I can personally imagine how much, how it just would be a little more difficult if I was dating a type three. Yeah. 
But again, to your point, there's not really an end all be all, not a specific type that would be the, the end all be all best for you per se, because there's also a lot of, I guess, understanding the other person. And, um, and that is a component of loving them. I I will say this, like, and, and, and I really don't ever suggest or recommend like, Hey, if you're dominant type three, like you should find a partner or date somebody who's you know, one of these two, three or four types. Like I, I really do think like you'll, you'll find gifts and challenges in relating to any one of the nine types. But yeah. I do see at least in, in sort of friendship circles, um, some natural affinities of sort of clustering up in, um, sets or groups that are sometimes called the harmony triads. So yeah. the threes, the six and the nines, these are, are, are very pragmatic types of people. Um, you often see three, six and nines working, relating to each other really well, finding really mm. easy or effortless friendships. Um, the ones, the fours and the sevens are, are, are sort of a, a, a type of frustrated idealist and ones and fours and sevens somehow seem to, to be drawn to each other. And what they really are doing in, in these sort of spaces where they come together is they're 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 respecting the idealism of the other while going on vacation from what's frustrating them about their specific kind of idealism. And then somehow eights, twos, and fives end up sort of coming together. And um and these three, you know, very different, but have such such uh, sort of an unspoken resonance make make really great sets of friends or groups. Now, I'm not saying you have to or you should even intentionally right. look for that but you'll mm-hmm. sort of see it as as sort of um a natural sort of settling of of kinds of people in in yeah. larger communities organizations or, or or sets of friendship circles super interesting too okay so to that point just speaking about the different um the harmony triads a huge like those three pairings for each of those different three sets that you just mentioned each one of them um have a different kind of intelligence center, right? So, right, isn't, aren't they like the three, six, and the nines? I know they're, they're all three different, the head, the heart, and the gut, I you say, or the soul and the body. <laughs> mm-hmm. So it's so interesting because like, even though they're all different, they perceive the world very differently. They're, they're interestingly enough, they, when they come together, just like you said, they kind of can relate. So can we talk about the intelligence centers, I guess, for a second? Sure. So the, so one of the, the first teachings of the Enneagram, um, and, and really the Enneagram in its modern form being sort of, let's say, re, quote unquote, rediscovered 101 years ago by a, a Turkish Armenian guy named, named George Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff really only taught the Enneagram through the centers, right? And, and he, he, he didn't really teach it as a personality or, or a typing teaching or, or tool or process. Gurdjieff sort of said that if you sat in the desert and drew this drawing into the sand, you could see within it everything that's ever been taught and everything that could ever be learned. That if you understood the Enneagram, libraries are useless. Well, what mm. Gurdjieff taught us and, and what we learn about the Enneagram through the centers is that there's three moving forces in the world, right? This is our, mm. our instincts and our body, our feelings and our heart and our thoughts in our head. And, you know, you see this in, in the sacred scripture of all the world's great religions. You see this in the teaching of, of Plato. I mean, you, you see this show up everywhere. And so what the Enneagram does with this is says, 
that if you're dominant type eight, nine, or one, you're, you're considered body types or gut types that, that you are instinctive and intuitive. You do experience life as too much. And so if you're an eight, you fight back. If you're a nine, you withdraw. If you're a one, you try to fix that too muchness of, of life. Mm. If you're two, three or four, you're, you're in your heart. And so you're, you're in the feeling center and, and, and for, you know, for the body center, if they're primarily concerned with control, then the heart center is primarily concerned with connection and comparison. And and you experience the world through this sort of emotional intelligence, this frequency of, 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 of having this sense of, of, of deep connection at that heart level. And so twos offer themselves threes use this to sort of, um, they, they pivot within it and, and they, and they, and they play roles as a way of, of giving themselves away and fours use this to draw people towards them so that they'll be seen. Mm. So if we move from comparison to connect, I'm sorry, if we move from control to connection and comparison, then the five, six and sevens in our head are primarily concerned with competency. Mm. Right. And, mm. and so fives really do need to figure things out. Sixes really do need to, to sort of find stability and security. And sevens really do want to, to think about what's next as a way of, of maintaining their, their freedom. Now these intelligent mm. centers, either through your instincts, through your feelings or, or through your thoughts is how you primarily perceive the world. Mm. And, and, and really what's yeah. the great secret in the teaching of the Enneagram's intelligence centers is this is where you learn to practice discernment. You can actually learn to grow in fluency and understand your instincts, understand your feelings, understand your thoughts. That's how, that's how you, you, you learn to trust yourself. That's where you make your best decisions. That's part of you that shows you what is good, true and beautiful and the way to get there for your own journey. Right? So it's a, it's an important teaching. It's, it's actually, it's actually crucial to understand the Enneagram. And I think if you can understand the Enneagram, um, through the intelligence centers, you, you, you understand all of the Enneagram. Oh, I totally can hear you on the, at least the heart part for sure. When I read that part in the book, you know, being a three, it, and I know the three is, um, the middle of the heart center, right. But it's interesting because they're the most disconnected with their heart. So, Mm -hmm. so much of that spoke to me as well. And I was like, wow, it's really, really interesting, but also how I, I want to understand the the world more from the other areas as well, the head and the soul and the body. I love also that you, that so many world religions and of course, Christianity really comes back to this idea of heart, soul, and mind. I mean, even in the, in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it says, love your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so, so much of that is at play in Christianity and world religions all over the world, which is so interesting. And I think that's what the Enneagram shows us is that we we can't separate or disassociate or fragment any of these things that the real movement of integration, even in how we nurture and nurture our spirituality, is this movement from mindfulness to heartfulness to embodiment. And you, you can't have one without the other. Either either missing component will will be unaccountable. So I also love just knowing your history too with Mother Teresa. And I love in the book, you talk about this section where she kind of asked you a question, which I just loved reading this part, but um, she asked you a few times, is Jesus in your heart? And so why do you think there's something so crucial about human nature and the function of the heart 
as a Christian, especially, and I guess the second part of that question is why do you think it's so essential to know this deep and true love for ourselves prior to entering into a relationship? So the Cynthia Bergeau talks about um, the heart as an organ of perception, right? And and I think what we we do is we 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 misunderstand the metaphor of what our heart is when we talk about it. And in fact, I think when we we don't understand what we mean by the heart or our heart, we we almost devalue it or diminish it or, or sort of take the, the power and the strength of it out. Now, you know, within our religious traditions, we we know that the heart has has maybe disproportionately been given more prominence over our instincts or our mind. And that's why you know, when we, when we say prayers, we, we, we close our eyes and we bow our heads because in a sense, we're putting our minds into our heart. We hold mm-hmm. our hands or fold our hands, which in a sense is we're supporting our heart between these two centers. Um, it's important to know the heart. It's important to understand the language of the heart. It's important to be able to trust the heart. Um, but like I said, mm-hmm. I think it's important to, to know that the heart is one of three parts of us that, that need to be integrated into the whole. And so, you know, to give it too much power, especially if you're not a heart person, means you're diminishing actually what your probably dominant intelligence center is, and, and maybe you're not going to be practicing discernment the best you can. But to, to also take its power away, I think, um, is, is a real disservice to it as this organ of perception, an organ that can perceive something that only the heart can perceive. That's That's what's great about the Enneagram. It's like, I, I sometimes say this, like, I, I think one of my little sisters is dominant in type two. So she's clearly a heart person, a heart center person in her mm-hmm. feeling center. And I remember when we were kids, adults told her, don't trust your feelings, think this out. And it's like, well, actually, if she's in her heart, her feelings are going to tell her something that her instincts or her mind can't. So she does trust it. And I think we do need to learn to trust our hearts. That said, we need to trust our hearts as they relate accountably to our instincts and to our thoughts just like people mm-hmm. in their heads can't be disconnected from their hearts. Their right. thoughts have to be accountable to their feelings and to their instincts. And the same can be true for the body types. So this is a real, this is one of the great teachings of the Enneagram that it actually lets us become whole people, avoiding that yeah. inner fragmentation. And, and like I said, really avoiding that tendency to allow any of the fragments of our sense of self to lay claim to the whole of who, who we think we are, who we perceive ourselves to be, or, or even who we wish we might become, you know? Oh, I want to get a little more geeky for just one more second here. Um, and I want to kind of talk about the dominant effect groups if we can. I found that to be really interesting because it's, I mean, I'm kind of quoting your book here, but that's the idea that we relate to the world specifically as a result of our definition of family relationships. And it's a driving why or force behind the harmony triad. So, and it really helps us to understand our childhood because you kind of talked about that at the beginning um, and the wounds maybe of our childhood and how we felt maybe rejected, attached, or frustrated. So can we just talk about that for a second? Because I find that that, that part of the Enneagram obviously is so, so much of the essence of it, of understanding some of our childhood wounds. Yeah. So I, so I, I love, so actually how I try to approach the Enneagram is more from the why behind type than the what type looks like. And mm. and I'll say this to sort of clarify that, first of all, that like I, I believe yeah. that 
we're born our type, that I don't think like it's cause and effect. So number one, I think the notion of the so-called childhood wounds is a little bit unfortunate because if you're a parent, you're not wounding your children, right? Our, our mm-hmm. childhood wound fundamentally is the confirmation bias of our type to ourselves. It's, it's the, the way that we ache. It's, it's the way that we experience our disconnect from our true essence or our loss of being. So to, to wrap childhood wound language around that is, is partially accurate, but it can be, it can be misleading. Another, another overlay that I, that I think sort of helps understand that teaching is, is when you take ob, an object relations theory overlay to the Enneagram. And that's what um, is sometimes referred to as the harmony triads or, you know, in the Enneagram Institute, they'll, they'll call this the dominant affect groups. But essentially, object relations theory sort of tells us that at a certain point in our infancy, we we begin to realize that we are not the parent that, you know, if we we nursed from our mother was that we were that we were actually separate, that we were the subject and that that nursing parent became the object. And and in that objectification of that caregiver in our our early holding environments, we began to distance ourselves and begin to understand ourselves then in relation to the others. So the object relations theory overlay with the Enneagram says that we relate to either our protective and or nurturing caregiver through rejection, attachment, or frustration. And, mm-hmm. and this really can lead, I think, true healing with your parent or parents. And I think if you're, you're concerned about, you know, the ways you struggle in your interpersonal relationships, your dating relationships, I, I think a lot of it's mm-hmm. probably tied to, to to your frustration, your rejection, or sense of rejection, or your attachment with with one of your parents or both of them. So the frustration types are are the ones fours and sevens. These are the the frustration. The, the the frustration is this: you had more nurturing or protective or both love to give me, and for whatever reason you withheld. Now again, this may be a misperception. It may not actually be accurate or real. But for the one, the frustration was with the protective parent. For the four, it was with both the protective and nurturing caregivers. And for the sevens, it was with the nurturing caregiver. And that frustration then leads to constant frustrations of idealism and relationships. So you can watch this for yourself and, and, and see where, where you may be stuck. If you're five eight, or two, these are the rejection types, right? And the twos felt rejected by the protective caregiver. The eights rejected the nurturing caregiver. And the fives felt rejected by both or, or rejected both. And so again, if you're, you're dominant in five, eight or two, you can watch this, the role of rejection as a cycle that might actually be what's derailing a lot of your, your relationships unnecessarily. Mm. And, and you can, can find ways to heal that. And then if you're a three, six or nine, and the three is, is, is right there in the middle of the heart center, the six is right there in the middle of the head center. And the nine is right there in the middle of the, the gut center, the body center. Well, ironically, the three, six, nine are the most disconnected from their hearts, heads, and, and bodies. They're called mm-hmm. the attachment types. And because of that disconnection, they attached, right? So if the three's disconnected from the heart, what did they do? They attached to their nurturing parent. If the six yeah. is disconnected from their head, what did they do? They attached to their protective caregiver. And I'm attached to both. And, and in attaching, you let that caregiver, that parent do for you what you were unable or weren't doing for yourself. 
So again, if you look into relationships, you may find an over-reliance in attaching to allowing your partner to do something for you that you actually need to do for yourself so that you can bring Ooh, version yeah. of yourself into these, these relationships. Ooh, yes. <laughs> I've definitely done that. I'm not going to lie. Oh my goodness. Uh, Chris, I never even asked you earlier, but what type are you exactly? So I'm, I'm dominant in type eight, which is a mm. little bit of a bummer because everybody seems to know what they always say is a pretty unhealthy eight and uh real unhealthy eights are, are terrible human beings. Um, oh. They just, they just stomp on people and they're, they're, they're just too much. So you, cause you use a reference earlier. Sometimes they could be the bullies in, in, in certain situations, yes. but when they're unhealthy. Yes. And sometimes when they're a yeah. version of average too, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Just like as we wrap up here, I love the ending part of your book too. And once we've kind of spent the time to construct who we are and understand our type and then and kind of deconstruct some of those things and figuring out all the like the intelligence centers and the the um harmony triads and the dominant affect groups and all of that. Um, what are some I guess you go into the contemplative practices and how that can help to bring us back to our true self. So can we just briefly, can you talk about that for a second? What does that look like and how would that benefit us both as individuals and in relationships? Sure. So I, I actually spent five years trying to sort of prove this theory, which I, I think actually has become pretty self-evident for people who read the book. Mm. But um, I, I essentially take the intelligence centers, right? The, the body types, the heart types and head types. And I say, if you're mm. actually going to do your inner work, if you really want to sort of find healing from the, the so-called pain of your, your childhood wound, or if, if you feel stuck and, and you do want to nurture yeah. and nourish your, your, your con, a, a contemplative spirituality towards your own inner liberation, then you bring a posture, you bring a way of holding what it is that you're going to bring in prayer. You wait, you bring a, a posture as a way of holding how you pray. So for mm -hmm. the body types, that posture is, is stillness, right? Eight's need to stop fighting. Nines need to stop arbitrating. Ones need to stop correcting themselves and, and everyone else. If you're dominant type twos, threes, or fours, if you're a feeling center, it's solitude. You need to stop actually connecting yeah. and comparing yourself to everyone else and giving yourself away or, or trying to be seen. And you need to enter into the interior place of your sense of self to find the truth of yourself. And if in your yeah. head, the five, six, or sevens, the, the, the contemplative prayer posture that I'm suggesting is silence, right? Fives need to turn down mm -hmm. the noise of, of trying to, to solve the problem. Sixes need to turn down the noise of threat forecasting. And sevens need to turn down the noise of, of anticipating what's next after their inability to stay present in this moment. And if you can give yourself to postures marked by solitude, silence, or stillness, I really do think that becomes the corrections, the overcorrections to what's out of control in, in each of our lives. So then I take these dominant affect groups or the harmony triads, and I say, now your dominant affect group or harmony triad actually exposes or shows to you a mindfulness intention. So if you can understand the contemplative posture is how you're holding something, well, what are you holding? I think you need to hold these mindfulness intentions of consent, engagement, or rest. And when you take these three contemplative prayer postures, these three mindfulness intentions, and wrap them around the Enneagram, you get nine unique combinations that don't overlap. And this is where I really think the Enneagram then shows itself to be less about nine types of people, more 
really about nine paths to God or nine paths in love or nine ways of of finding your way home. It was so interesting because I, I'm not going to lie. I haven't done a ton of contempt. I haven't, I haven't practiced contemplative prayer in like excessively. So I haven't used that as a key component of my life in the past, really just kind of on the side. So I think just understanding the contemplative practices as it relates to helping us get back to a clearer picture, um, to our, our true self and who God has created us to be, it's, it can be so freeing and so beautiful. And I, I know you recommend some different kinds of prayer postures and, and types of prayer that we can do. Right. Um, as well to kind of, yeah, I mean, in the, in the book at the end, I, I, I do introduce, um, the methodology for centering prayer for the Ignatian examine yeah. practice, and then for a welcoming practice. And I think those are three pretty easy sort of entry points for, for, for like in finding a, a gentle introduction to contemplative spirituality or sort of demystifying mysticism. If, if it seems intimidating, um, you know, a loving kindness meditation mm-hmm. is is also another really easy mindfulness practice that I think sort of can become a ritual that's honored and and, and practiced by by all of us, all of our types. But it it will generate nine different fruits, of course, within us, and these fruits will be gratitude, acceptance, and, and compassion. And and, and yeah. a human being who doesn't want to become more compassionate. Chris, I just want to thank you so much for the gift of your time, your incredible knowledge today, because I I can barely even comprehend. I'm going to have to go back and listen to this episode, I feel like, multiple times to just re-sync into all of the truth and the knowledge that you've given us today. It's been so helpful. I feel like I could talk for hours to you about all of this and go on and on, but um, I just want to thank you again for your time and for the gift of your book and your incredible wisdom, The Sacred Enneagram. Um, it's such a useful tool. So thank you for that. Appreciate you having me. Yeah. Where can we um, also find you? What, where can people get more resources other than obviously your amazing book? Where can they find you through workshops and different things? Um, what are you working on? Sure. So if you go to sacredenneagram.org, there will be a hit list of um, one-day workshops that we offer. And, and, and generally, we offer them um, in North America, so, so the U.S. and Canada. But we've also done these in, in New Zealand and Cambodia, um, Morocco yeah. and South Africa. Um, and so that will always have an updated list of, of events that are open for registration. Um, you can also go to our website for our nonprofit, which is gravitycenter.com. You can oh, learn awesome. about the, the retreats. We do a lot of them, introduction to contemplative spirituality, introduction to contemplative practice yeah. and, and retreats where we help sort of allow people who are trying to build a better world and believe that that needs to come from a place of rooted and grounded spirituality, find ways of being introduced to, 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 to prayer practices that they can take with them on the road, that, that they can tuck into their very active and busy lives and grow in compassion for themselves and, and the world. Amazing. I want to come to one of your workshops for sure. So hopefully if you have one in California in the coming years, I will be there. Okay. <laughs> Chris, you're awesome. Thanks so much. Behave. I think we all just need to take a moment to just sit into all of what we just heard and learned from Chris. Is your mind as blown as much as mine was? Chris is so much smarter than me and is filled with such wisdom and is so, so, so interesting. If you didn't think about the Enneagram before, I hope you really will now. 
And I especially hope you'll go pick up Chris's book, The Sacred Enneagram. Mine is personally highlighted all over the place, you guys. My notebook is filled with notes and it's practically its own mini book. I learned so much. I hope you'll also go and check him out at his website, sacredenneagram.org. And also, you can find out if he will be leading a workshop somewhere near you by going to his other website, gravitycenter.com slash events. Knowing your Enneagram type and the type of the person you're going to date is so key to growing and understanding and loving one another better. So I hope you will take an interest in it after today. Also, if you support this mission, I'd love, love, love for you to hit subscribe on iTunes. Please, please, please. You can also stay up to date with show notes on heartofdating.com. And you can follow along on Instagram at, at heartofdating. And, you know, if you happen to know a friend or two that might need some dating help, I'd love for you to share this with them and get them to also support this. We have some amazing guests coming up in the coming weeks, and I am confident you will love it. So stick with me as we journey through this together. Until next time, friends.